Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. We get to hear a sermon today, and one a great sermon by a great preacher, a friend of our school, and the pastor of the church that Ralph Waldo Beeson belonged to, Independent Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham. Our preacher and the pastor of that church is Dr. William J. Carl III. He's been at that church about a year and a half, I think, and he preached this actually at our Beeson commencement in December of 2015. Introduce us to this sermon, Dr. Smith. This is a sermon that has thorough, practical application throughout. It's not reserved to the end, obviously. It's our Beeson uh, graduation service. Uh, it's engaging. He takes in consideration the fact that this message ought to reach not only the graduates, but their parents, ought to speak to professors, ought to speak to people who are retired and feel like they haven't accomplished anything, speak to young people. So I thought he is being a very sensitive to the audience as well as accurate in terms of cutting straight the text. He redeems the phrase, you are somebody by emptying it of its self-exaltation solution and refilling it with grace, which glorifies God. Because in the end, what he wants to say is that the most powerful thing in church history is that everyone is really somebody by the grace of the Almighty God. So he is really moving away from you somebody in terms of self-importance and saying that it's only by God's grace that we are someone. Um, canonically, he goes all the way from uh, Eden to the eschaton, dealing with what is the one thing that everyone would want to do in order to reach a state of being somebody, which he really will answer it by saying, giving ourselves to the grace of God so that God will purpose and God will promote his purpose in bringing us to the place where we where he wants us to be. He negates what people perceive as what will make them somebody. Sweeps the floor clean. Education won't do it. Knowledge won't do it. Uh, pastoring won't do it. And says that even people who have the right to be somebody, at least superficially speaking, they are not somebody because of their accomplishments. And then he deals with Paul and says, Paul says that I have a right to boast more than anyone else. And yet Paul said he would be willing to give up everything in order that he might win Christ. Well, this arresting statement near the end is powerful, Dean George, for the listener to hear. God rarely works with those who think that they are somebody. God works with the weak. As Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. He worked all along for this disclosure. You're only somebody by the grace of God. Dr. Bill Carl, a great preacher, a superb pastor, also a theological educator for 10 years, the president of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. We were honored to have him as our commencement speaker here at Beeson, and this is what he had to say to us on that special day. Let's listen to Dr. Carl. I want to say what an honor it is to be here with you on this very special occasion. Uh, we do have a strong connection between Independent Presbyterian Church, whose uh, 
has a member named Re Ralph W. Beeson, uh, who has a strong connection, obviously, with this wonderful divinity school. I also love being in this chapel. I came here a few uh, months ago, ago when we were looking at changing our chapel at Pittsburgh Seminary, and I decided this is the most beautiful chapel I've ever seen at a divinity school or a seminary. So it's, a, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, President Westmoreland, Dean George, uh, distinguished faculty, uh, honored graduates and their families, it's, it's just so great. And you mentioned earlier uh, that you almost said First Baptist. Uh, actually, W.A. Criswell was a good friend, and I we were downtown there together at Pittsburgh Seminary, I mean at uh, Dallas, uh, First Presbyterian. And uh, I, I need to let you know that I'm very comfortable with this because half of our members at First Presbyterian were former Southern Baptists. <laughs> and we loved seeing them come because they came every Sunday, they believed in Jesus, they read their Bibles, they carried their big floppy Bibles, and the best part was they talked. And we thought, bring them on, we want to have as many of those as we can get. And it was easier to go that way because, you know, it's easier to cool off a Baptist than it is to warm up a Presbyterian. <laughs> <clears throat> but even the Presbyterians seemed warmed up enough here. It's just such a special time for not only the graduates but also for their families. So you may wonder, why would I have such a very odd passage read uh, that Hayden read just a few moments ago? about Paul's traumas and tribulations uh, out in ministry and out on the mission field. Uh, it seems like an odd passage, and yet I think there is a very simple message for those of us who have been in ministry a long time and for you who are just starting out in ministry. And the very simple message is the title of the sermon for today, You're Somebody. Because deep down, that's what we all want to be in the glory of God. Uh, from Eden to the eschaton, from the Babel Tower builders to James and John jockeying for a place at Jesus' right hand, the quintessential question of the human race is what is the one thing that I could do in my life that would make me a somebody? Think how many times you've used this phrase, you're somebody. Maybe you've seen some famous person that you've seen on TV and you're trying to remember who it is. You see them out on the street. Uh, I remember a few years ago seeing former Dallas cowboy Drew Pearson in a shopping mall there in Dallas. And I walked right up to him and I said, I know you. And he said, yeah, well, I don't know you. He said, I'm Drew Pearson. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. You went to the University of Tulsa. You remember we went to the University of Tulsa together? And No, he didn't remember that. Don't you remember we lived in the same dorm? No, he didn't remember that. Don't you remember we played on the same intramural basketball team? That is, you played, and I sat on the bench. No, he didn't remember that. And then I invited him to church, and that sort of ended the conversation abruptly. But I understand what he was going through because our service there at First Presbyterian in Dallas 
was on television uh, every third Sunday across the state of Texas to a half a million people. So I could hardly walk through a shopping mall or a hospital or especially a retirement community geriatric facility without somebody stopping and pointing and staring and saying, you, you're somebody. And then they'd start in, don't tell me, General Hospital. (laughs) Days of our lives. I'd say, no, that's not it. It's good. It's First Presbyterian Church. They'd say, no, that's not it. I'll get it. I'll get it in a minute. You, you're somebody. Deep down, that's what we all want to be, isn't it? To figure out the one thing that we could do in our lives that would make us somebody. Paul says in Philippians, this one thing I do and then stuck with it for the rest of his life. But think how many people don't do that. People who squander their lives and their gifts for a poor second best, like Coleridge, who had a genius nearly equal to that of Shakespeare. If he'd only written all the books he dreamed of writing, he would have left a small library, but instead all he left were a few glittering fragments to show how vastly gifted he was. Think what a somebody he could have become. What is the one thing that you could do in your life that would make you a somebody? If a genie were to grant you whatever wish you wanted this morning that would make you a somebody, what would it be? When you think you've got it, notice as Paul did that there's always something missing. Uh, Riches beyond belief, would that make you a somebody? If that were true, then why did a man like King David who had more than anyone could ever imagine seem to want for more and more this man's land, that man's wife? Don't get me wrong, riches in themselves are not bad, but... But if you think riches alone will make you a somebody, I can show you a lot of somebodies here in Birmingham, in Pittsburgh, in Dallas, in L.A., in New York, who still aren't happy with their lives. Riches alone won't do it. And if you think you're going to get riches going into the ministry, you really are mistaken. What will it take for you to be somebody? Lots of education, will that do it? That's what I used to think. Boy, when I get that Ph.D., then I'll be somebody. You know, I got the Ph.D. and found out things weren't really all that different. I still have to take out the trash. And do you know my wife has never once addressed me as Dr. Carl. She calls me a lot of other things. What is it going to take for you to be somebody? Lots of knowledge? Will that do it for you? If that were true, then why did man, a man like... Leonardo da Vinci, a a man of peerless and talent and achievement, seemed to want for more and more. Why did he say one day, why am I so unhappy? What will it take for you to be somebody, you who are graduating today especially? Maybe you think it's to be the senior pastor of a large church. Well, I can tell you that's all a matter of perspective. Frank Harrington was the senior pastor of the largest Presbyterian church in the United States, Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. Over 11,000 members. And one autumn, his wife said, Frank, you need to go out in the yard and rake the leaves. And he said, Sarah, do you realize you are asking the senior pastor of the largest Presbyterian church in the United States to rake the leaves? She said, well, you can wear your robe if you want to, but you're going to rake the leaves. You see, every time you think you've figured out what will make you somebody, there's always something missing, isn't it? Maybe you think you already are somebody with all the things you've accomplished. Well, 
if you do, then Paul, in the passage that Hayden just read, says to us very quickly, why you think you have something to boast about, why you don't even hold a candle to me. Listen to my resume. Chief Jew, member of the best synagogue in town, finest theological training in the land, martyr's award for most arrests, most nights spent in jail, missionary's award for most mission trips abroad, and most slides and PowerPoint presentations of those to show at church night suppers. Why you think you have something to boast about, says Paul, you don't even hold a candle to me. Of course, some people do have a right to boast because of all the things they have accomplished, right? I mean, Billy Graham has a right to boast. Condoleezza Rice has a right to boast. Roger Federer and Serena Williams have a right to boast. John Levinson has a right to boast. Who's John Levinson? You say, well, he's professor of Jewish studies at Harvard. One of the most brilliant professors I have ever heard. I heard him give five lectures without notes, blew us all away. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of scripture. He is fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Sanskrit, Ugaritic. He can quote liberally without notes from the Torah, the Talmud, the Midrash, and the Mishnah. And he's Got a great sense of humor, a kind of Jewish Jay Leno. He said, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door one day and they said, we'd like to talk to you about the Bible. He said, fine, what would you like to know? (laughs) We act like we have nothing to talk about. Come on in, let's go. Some people have a right to boast because of all the things they have accomplished in their lives. And Paul was certainly one of them. Paul started all those churches all over the Mediterranean. If anyone had a right to boast, Paul did. But Paul learned a very important lesson early on. The moment you think you're somebody, because of your own doing, God's going to take you down a notch or two and put you in your place. It happened first for Paul on the Damascus Road. Bam, knocked flat on his back. Had to start over from somebody to nobody. In no time. It happened again with the thorn in the flesh. It happened again and again throughout his life. It is the direction of the religious life in the Judeo Christian tradition, isn't it? From somebody to nobody. In no time flat. It happened first to Adam and Eve in the fall and to everyone after. From somebody to nobody. Here's Jacob selling some. Swampland in Florida and the Brooklyn Bridge to everybody inside, a great trickster. And he finds himself face to face with an angel of the Lord, and he ends up limping because grace always comes with a set of crutches, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, from somebody to nobody in no time flat. Here's Joseph strutting around, driving his brothers up the wall with his technicolor dream coat and his teacher's pet status. And he ends up doing time in an Egyptian prison from somebody to nobody. Moses thinks he's such a hotshot liberator, doesn't even get to go into the promised land from somebody to nobody. David just about loses the whole kingdom over another woman. Nathan says, thou art the man from somebody to nobody in no time flat. You who are graduating today know there will be days when you will feel like a nobody, even in ministry. My old professor, George Arthur Buttrick, who'd been pastor at Madison Avenue Church in New York City and preacher at Harvard, said one day a woman was shaking his hand at the door and she said, Dr. Buttrick, ever since my husband lost his mind, your sermons have meant so much to him. He wasn't sure... 
That was really a compliment. Or, you know, these people who grab you right before church and a preacher coming around to get ready to come down with the choir and, and, the, and a guy grabbed him and said, Preacher, if Jesus knew what was going on in this church, he'd be rolling over in his grave. Now, that's an interesting theology of the resurrection. <laughs> From somebody to nobody. You know the only difference between a big high school senior and a lowly college freshman? Three months, summer vacation. From somebody to nobody. Or maybe those of you who are graduating will have someone in your congregation who has retired and who goes around the office to see what's going on and nobody cares what that person thinks anymore. Or someone in your congregation who has lost a loved one. Maybe it's the love of her life, her soulmate. And now for the first time in her life, she feels completely alone. She feels like a nobody. You'll have people in your congregation like that. You'll feel that way someday. And when we feel that way, we pray for God's help only to find that God's answer is the very adversity we seek to discard. You pray for courage, God gives you greater danger. You pray for patience, you get a cranky neighbor. You pray for love, and you're thrown into a situation where you have to take care of someone who may be irksome or difficult. You pray for humility, and life brings you circumstances that break your pride. God's answer is the very adversity you seek to discard. And you learn, as Paul did long ago, for the very first time, that that God rarely works with the ones who think they are somebodies, right? I mean, God doesn't want just the ones who think they are somebody because you are not somebody because of your own doing, but only by the grace of God. God rarely works with the perfect specimens, but bone only with the weak and the hurting and the low and the despised. Why? Because as the passage we read earlier says, God's power is made perfect in our weakness, even as it was in Christ on the cross, who did not count his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He did not count his somebodiness in heaven as something to hold on to, but emptied himself in the great canonic motif, becoming a doulos, a servant, a slave, becoming obedient unto death, becoming a nobody, that you and I could become the somebodies God really wants us to be. Do you see how the divine geometry works? The great reversal? The moment, and you will feel this in ministry, the moment you feel most like a nobody, at that moment you can become the somebody God really wants you to be. Those of you who are graduating today and those of us who have been in ministry for a long time will know and do know that there are days when you feel a little down. There are days when you wonder if you're really making any difference to anyone or anyone's even paying attention to your sermons. And I was having a day like that back in Dallas a few years ago and, and just feeling kind of down, a little sorry for myself. And I had to go to a presbytery meeting, which didn't really perk up my spirits, but I went to the meeting anyway. And I was sitting out, it was a sanctuary about this size, and they were examining one of my former students from Union Seminary, where I used to teach back in Virginia, and he was getting examined for ordination. 
Now, back in the day, long time ago, when most of us went through, these exams could go on forever, and they could ask you any question they wanted from the floor on Bible, theology, church history, philosophy. It didn't matter. They could answer all these questions. At the end of one of those two-hour exams, a young man was just totally exhausted up in the pulpit, having been examined, and, and uh, an old elder stood up on the back row and said, Young man, I have one final question. Would you be willing to go to hell for the glory of God? He said, Sir, I'd be willing for this whole presbytery to go to hell for the glory of God. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's not that way anymore. They sort of pass them on through really fast. And... I could see they were about to pass Mike Shelton, my former Greek student, through, and I was elbowing people around. That, I, I taught him Greek. He was in my Greek class. And then I found myself making my way down the aisle to the microphone and raised my hand to ask a question. And everybody knew I was a former seminary professor, and Michael's face went a little pale when he saw me. I said, Michael... As your former Greek professor, I have a Greek question I want to ask you. The entire presbytery sucked air in unison, glad that they weren't up there. I said, the question I want to ask you is, do you remember any of the Greek at all that I taught you? The moderator said, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. He said, no, I'd like to try with the first few lines of the Lord's Prayer in Greek. You know, Dr. Carl, you taught us to say as our opening prayer every day, and a hush fell over. The presbytery, as Michael started in, Pater Himonhain, Toisuranois, Hagiaste, Toton, Amasu, El Thato, He, Basileasu, Geneteto. And he went on and on to the end of the prayer, and the presbytery erupted into a standing ovation. And I gave him one of these from the pew because I knew that my life had been worthwhile, not because I had lectured at Oxford and Cambridge and Princeton and all over the world or had written all those books, but because I had made a difference in at least one person's life. That's what the faculty needs to remember today. The difference you've made to these graduates and countless others through the years. It's a lesson taught over and over to those of us who administer. We think we can only be effective when we have all the right words, all the right prayers, all the right resources. We think we can only make a difference when we are powerful and in charge. But then one day we are not. We are tired. We are overwhelmed. Our own faith may be frail and our behavior not exemplary, but on that day, at that moment, a person we have never been able to reach can now suddenly reach out and join hands with us. And it was a cold winter day, and I had just finished the sermon. It was one of those, you know, we'd had four funerals, and I barely got the sermon together. I say to our homiletic students, you don't have to hit a grand slam home run every week. Just get on base, you know. Maybe it's a ground rule double. That way, that day, it was a bunt or an error. I barely got on. I sat down. I said, Lord, you're going to have to do something with this sermon today because that's, that's the best I can give. And one of our associate pastors was droning through a Presbyterian invitation to discipleship, where you, of course, never expect anyone to come forward. If you want to join our church, make your way down the hall, two doors to the right. There may be a couple of elders there. And he was just droning through that Presbyterian invitation. And from the second pew, a man leapt up and yelled out, You mean, can't I come down and dedicate my life to Jesus right now? Well, once we resuscitated my associate pastor... 
He turned to me and whispered, what do I say? And I whispered back, say yes, that's what we're here for. But I didn't know my remote mic was still on. And say yes echoed all over the sanctuary. And say yes echoed all over the state of Texas as if God Almighty had said yes, yes, yes to every single one of us. And we gathered down front with the old man and like the prodigal, you know, he was right there in front of us. We had to scrap the whole end of the service, which freaked out my choir director. And, but like the prodigal, he came home that day, and it was the most moving thing ever happened in our church. Why? Because God's power was made perfect in my weakness that day. So you see, graduates of Beeson Divinity School, faculty, staff, administrators of Samford, and all family and guests, you and you and you, every single one of you, you're really somebody by the grace of Almighty God. God bless you all. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.